Hello and welcome to Behind the Suit and Tie with me, Tama Chowdhury. In Behind the Suit and Tie, we explore the people behind the workers and why they do the things they do. We also discuss the latest news and how we can make work more human. Have you ever sat next to a colleague, perhaps for years, and realised you knew very little about them? This podcast is here to learn more about the world of work and the people within it. Hello and welcome to another episode of uh, Behind the Suit and Tie. Uh, I'm joined by Andrew Weeks, so you're a technical product manager. How are you doing today? I'm doing uh, real good. Thank you for asking. How are you doing? I'm all right. I think we were chatting a bit off air that I'm uh, towards the end of the day and you're towards the beginning. So I'm kind of slowly wilting into the evening and I guess you're fresh and, and ready for the day. Exactly right. Blooming, I think, to use the same flower metaphor. Yeah, no, that's a good, good metaphor. Um, I see you, uh, you're having a, someone joining you on that side. Um, I don't know if you'd like to introduce them. Yeah, sure. This is this is Lainey. Lainey, unfortunately, was uh, was locked in a room last night, so she's being very um, affectionate. Um, but this is not a snake. <laughs> that's that's good to know. And uh, well, it's always good to put cats in videos. So um, it's very much appreciated exactly right. from my side. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Uh, I love it. So. Um, Thanks. Thanks a lot for for taking the time to join. Um, I guess a good place to start, if nothing else, is a bit about your role. Um, maybe just a bit about you know what what a technical product manager does, because I I personally don't know so much. And yeah, it'd just be good to get get an idea of what you what you do. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's it's funny, you know. I've been working as a technical product manager. We call it a TPM uh, for the last two and a bit years, two and a half years, and I still have not found a great uh, definition of it. Um, but but maybe a couple of examples, sort of like, you'd imagine a project manager can t- like runs a project. Well, a product manager helps run a product. And where projects end, like a product goes live, a project end. When a product goes live, that's when sort of a product manager steps in. And what they're helping with is they help articulate and, and make sure that the features that we're building and the product that we're building will actually help the client. And so it's all about a giant focus on making sure that the client's needs are addressed while also making sure that you know the business has that. So acting as this almost interpreter between you know the business, the client, and the technical side, right? And, and in some organizations, uh, you also would have design there as sort of these three branches of sort of like product design and engineering as these three pillars uh, to make sure that a product is um, successful. And in this way, it's not just about hitting dates. It's not just about getting something to market, but it's to make sure there's something that's actually meaningful, adding value to customers' life to the extent that they're willing to pay money for it. Hmm. Oh, that's, that's, that's very succinct. It sounds like, you know, it's not, I'm not the first person who's asked, um, but, uh, I'd love to understand a bit more then. Um, so, so what sort of products are we talking about when, when well, in your work, for example? Uh, so my, my work's a little bit more boring, but, um, but, but basically you can consider almost anything to be a product, right? Um, many of the same sort of uh, theories and methodologies that we follow, um, for example, Lean originally came out of, you know, Toyota manufacturing, you know, um, and, and this idea of like, hey, how can we iterate quickly and also get something out fast? But uh, in terms of my company, what I, what I work on is sort of, uh, so I work for a, a CoreLogic, which is a, a real estate data company. So we're uh, a provider of real estate data. And um, one of the products I've helped on is sort of the thing that, that's like Google Maps, right? It helps convert sort of just a random string into an actual address. Um, and then so that way you can think about sort of like the product being like, hey, how do you format the string? Um, how do you make messages that sort of make sense? And you think, okay, hey, what features would people like? Like first you say, hey, for Google Maps, for example, the most important thing is being able to drive from point A to point B. So you need to be able to route it by car. 
And then we need to prioritize what's next. Is it more important to do bike paths or bus routes? Is it more important to, to be able to have accurate traffic handling um, or to do like the most efficient route? You know, like now we have that, including, hey, people complain that, hey, they keep getting routed onto a toll road. And uh, you only have a, a, a certain size development team, you can't do everything. And so you have a lot of really good ideas and a lot of really smart people and clients who are, you know, giving feedback. And it's your job to help prioritize that, to understand, hey, what does the customer want and what can we deliver and making sure that we're prioritizing that effectively. Hmm. I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, it's an interesting intersect, I suppose. It, uh, this is just my interpretation. And I suppose I'm a bit more familiar on a project management sense, but I, I must say I've kind of done project management, but more in a sort of public organization, which is, is, is a world in itself, uh, but, but that's, that's a whole other subject. Um, and I suppose from the way that you're framing it, sort of from the project management side is, is you know create the thing jump through all the hoops get it all done and then just kind of shove it out there um and then it's if i and, and correct me if i'm wrong the idea is then you you kind of well make sure it's fit for purpose it's kind of doing what the client and then the, the customer actually wants um it, have i understood that correctly yeah and and sometimes it's sort of understanding why people want what they want and make sure like they may be saying A, but they actually want B, right? And just sort of being able to highlight examples where we're saying, hey, she's very adventurous. Um, I'm trying to understand uh, examples where people sort of think they know things um, and like that. The other thing that's important about what sort of product managers do more broadly, um, and sometimes it's my role and sometimes I, I have a partner called a product owner, um, different Agile organizations will use those terms differently, um, but they also then work with clients specifically and they'll do customer interviews and they'll validate assumptions like we might say, hey, you know, if we did this, customers would be willing you know, to pay for it. Um, and so then we also say, okay, hey, we instead of taking that as gospel, we say, hey, we take that as an assumption and we try to validate that so that as we go develop our product, we're taking sort of like a data-driven approach with a theory and a hypothesis. Um, instead of just, hey, this is probably going to work, which people would not say, but people say that with a lot more confidence and then people build products and then, you know, they fail. And I, this would be my assumption anyway, I imagine one of the, the tricky things about it is that I suppose, and I'm talking about organizations in general and some of my own personal assumptions, but, but sometimes there's this thing of like, create a product, get it out there, make the sales, wash your hands of it and, you know, job done. And I suppose to kind of be at that front end with, with customers and, and clients and to kind of hear the feedback, um, I suppose it, it sounds like there's a bit of a role there to kind of pull back some of the, the internal thinking perhaps, and, and, you know, some of the getting in your bubble of delivery or even just, this is, we do the best thing ever, so it's fine. So we don't need to worry about the clients because the sales are up. Um, is that a fair statement? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And then that sort of goes to how sort of our company specifically does, um, does product management. And we sort of are trying to go by agile principles, uh, specifically like extreme programming as a as sort of one of the things, but also pulling a lot from like the lean startup. And uh, and, and what we, we get from both of those um, is this this key focus on try to get to market quickly with like, like something small to validate that, hey, what we're building is valuable and then iterate on that as we sort of see that success. So we see, hey, we have this whole giant idea, right? And, and I'll pick on Google Maps again, like we have, hey, we're gonna develop Google Maps. Well, hey, what's, what's the smallest thing that you could build that would be interesting to people or people might be willing to pay for, right? So you say, hey, for us right now, it'd be version one is just a map, right? A map with all the roads or even maybe not all the roads. Maybe we pick just a city. Right. And suddenly we got from like all of these features down and you said, OK, hey, what's next? Is it bus routes? Is it bus times? Is it things? Um, and then you can sort of say, OK, hey, how do we slowly iterate on this? And then we can sort of see with customers, not, hey, would this be valuable? But how much, you know, how valuable is this routing? And, you know, like that. And are, are there other ways to do that? So it's still this idea of still trying to go to market, still trying to do it all but trying to see, hey, are there ways you can chunk it up? And, and sometimes you can, and sometimes you're like, hey, 
you know, for this to be valuable, you need like this much. And then you just have to see, hey, you bite the bullet. But but generally, that's also what I'm trying to say is, hey, are there ways that we can um, reduce the size of the project, the short term project to be able to, you know, get value to our customers earlier? And I think it says a lot about about agile methodologies, but I think agile methodologies used properly is what I describe it in that I've got, um, yeah. so I worked in government. I, so I did an agile, like one of the qualifications. Um, admittedly, I don't think I use a lot of the principles because I think it it's, well, I use some of the myth philosophy as much as I can, but, but the, the systems around it are, are, do not work in that method. So I, I do recall talking to quite a few colleagues and stuff and they're just being like, Oh, agile, it's just such a fad. And like, you know, it's, it's just a saying. And to some extent it is because the way it's used is kind of lumped at the end where it's like, we've got a deadline of two weeks. So let's just do this agile, like, um, rather than it being about the whole system about, you know, the getting that feedback and doing iteratively. Um, I don't know. I just, I just find it refreshing to hear some <laughs> doing a bit closer to it what is, it's meant to be. Yeah, it is. It is very easy to do agile wrong, right? And, and I, I'm still I'm still thinking about this internally. So I'll say something very sweeping and then possibly double back on myself later. But I think one of the one of the most important things with with an agile team, I think, is is discipline. Because I think this idea of like scope creep or like, hey, why don't we just add this feature or why don't we do this um, is really easy to do. And it also requires discipline to really try to answer that question. What's the smallest thing that we can build that adds value? And then that getting customer feedback. And I know like at a, at a few different organizations, there's there's potentially some hesitancy, right? You're like, hey, we're a big business. We have a name brand. Like, you know, we don't want to put something out there that's not good enough. And that's why I think startups often have um, a little bit of a better time because they don't have a reputation that they're risking, right? Um, when they say, hey, we're putting this out there, the whole point of a minimum viable product and MVP, a small thing, is that, hey, it's going to be a little rough around the edges. And I think for some organizations, uh, the the risk that's associated with that and a potential brand impact is not worth the benefit of potentially saving a lot of money on a product. Um, and it's true, right? If you have a company that makes $1, $2 billion a year, um, you know, um, th that's a very reasonable choice they have to make, but I think they lose out on that um, potential innovation and ability to move faster. And really, like, what, what I appreciate about Agile most, one of the, I don't know if you've heard of, like, the, the whatever, the Agile manifesto. Um, but one of those principles is, like, welcome changing requirements even late into the game. Um, and so like the, the two things I like about Agile is like at any point, you should be able to just step away, the whole development team leaves and you have like a functioning product. And that means you have a ton of ability as an organization to be fungible and say, hey, where do we put resources? And to focus on what's most important. But the other thing is you can pivot if you say, hey, this strategy is not working. Hopefully your iteration time between sort of like big features is, you know, we try to aim for less than eight weeks. So that means if you need to pivot, the most you're giving away at the worst case is seven weeks worth of work, right? Which sucks, but, you know, compared to, you know, some projects, I know three months, six months, nine months, and you're like, you know, like you have like a sunk cost fallacy. We can't throw that away. We got to finish it, even if no one's going to use it. So, I yeah, I think it's it's really interesting and, and it's, it's like a mindset shift. And I think when you talk about it to places that have done things as, as they have been done, quote unquote, for years and years and years, it sounds like some level of heresy. Um, and, and to some extent, maybe it is a bit in the sense of like, yeah, okay, you're putting out something that's a bit rough around the edges. And, you know, societally, we're told, I don't know, schools and stuff, you don't submit bad work, you submit good work, and you get a good grade, submit bad work, you get a bad grade. Um, but I think, I mean, this is my personal take on it. I, there are very few things that create perfectly the first time. And the only way you're going to know is by putting it out there and being able to see it and, and, and letting other people see it. And the amount of stuff that just goes wrong, because, hey, even in the smallest instance, and, and maybe this is going away a bit from the agile, but like, say I'm doing a piece of work and rather than doing it for four weeks and then going to my boss or whatever and saying, is this okay? And they realize I've gone completely on the wrong direction, even a small thing of doing a check-in 
early on to like actually sense check that. I mean, I know that this is really simplifying it, but I think it's there where, you know, any organization can really gain from some of this thinking. Um, at least yeah. that's my reflection on it. Absolutely. I think that's a really good example. One book that I really liked, which is cliche because sort of it's it's one of the, the big books on it, but it is, it's the Lean Startup. And they talk about that, like exactly right. Like you might think, hey, I have this report due and this report has this certain format, right? But like, what if you did something completely different and you just sort of said, hey, am I on the right track, right? Like, hey, I have this bulleted list. Um, and I, I read it a couple of years ago, so I don't remember the specific example, but uh, but they had this idea for for an automated system that would do something, right? Super great, Andrew, great example. Um, but essentially they said, hey, to know if this makes money, instead of building that whole system, we're gonna call people, tell them we have the automated system and just do it ourselves, right? And then they just manually did this and then they saw if they got enough customers and then they're like, okay, hey, there's enough people who are willing to pay for this automated system. And so they developed the system. But first they just said, hey, would you pay for an automated system without really, you know, and then they just did it. And they're like, cool. People are willing to pay for it. And so there's things like that, which is how can you, like people think, oh, I need to build this whole thing. Like, how could you do it smaller? Even if it requires manual intervention in the short term, that helps you know if there's enough business to make it worth building the big system. So I think that's also a different way of thinking than I think we're, we're often used to. Yeah, for sure. And and I think there's, there's a lot of fascinating stuff about that. And I think once you open your mind to this sort of stuff and, and, and the world kind of shifts and it's not massive changes, it's just small behaviors, but they can, they can make such a big difference. Um, but one thing I did want to do before we kind of went even further down this sort of wider discussion, just in terms of your role itself. Um, I mean, I guess, you know, so, so we've got this framework of iteration and getting feedback, um, you know, as a product manager, how do you put that in practice? Um, because it's one thing to say, let's iterate and get client feedback. But what, I mean, what does that look like in practice? I'll share a couple of things. One thing that we, we sort of say at my, my company and sort of was ingrained in me was two things, which is one, which is, you know, like you have to understand the value. If you can't articulate the value well, then like that's the, then you won't be able to sort of articulate that well. Uh, and you won't be able to sort of inspire the team and you're, you can't be confident that you're actually going in the right direction if you don't understand the value. So the first, the two sort of things we have called like start with why. So like ask why. And sometimes we have the five whys, which basically ask why five times. And then by that time, you sort of get to it. And then you can sort of it's good for both solving a problem, but also understanding sort of where the root issue is. And if you ask why enough times, the answer is generally to save the world or to make money, right? But you, you try to stop a couple levels below that. Um, but just, you know, trying to understand, hey, either why is this problem happening to address the root or sort of how will this help and sort of why. And, and I, I, this great guy called John Ryan, a uh, previous mentor of mine, he had this idea of, of an, an, an abstraction compass. This is a little aside, but, but I really like this. So it's an abstraction compass. And essentially you can move along the compass sort of, and it's, it's not more like a globe. It's more ephemeral at the top and very sharp at the bottom, uh, but you can go around by asking what and where questions. You move up the compass by asking why questions and you get very specific to a point sort of like uh, sort of like teeth on a saw by asking how questions. So if you think of there, you're like, okay, hey, if you ever think you're at a different level than someone, you can ask why to go up, how to go down, and then you can move around. And these why questions sort of go up. They're a little bit more ephemeral, they're a little bit more fuzzy, but that's when you get to sort of like the value, right? Hey, that's why we're doing this. And sometimes, you know, you know, and that's, that's why you ask why get up. Oh, Hey, I understand why we're doing it. And then we go down. How, how are we going to do it? And we get to something concrete. So that's what start with why the five words. Second thing is our sort of development process um, is geared towards this. So uh, to bore you a little bit, we sort of have this, this process we, we borrowed from a company it used to be called pivotal now as a part of VMware. Um, but, and I'm not, I'm not sure if they came up with it. They're just the ones who introduced me to it. Um, but they sort of say, hey, you start off with a scoping and you sort of invite, hey, the stakeholders, the people who have this idea in, and you're like, hey, what's the idea? Okay, we got it, your journey there, hopefully with a designer, not always the case. Then you go through what's called discovery and framing, which is like three to eight weeks, depending on, on how much you can. And you're trying to explore in the discovery, you explore the problem. And in the framing, you explore the solutions. 
And then in that time, you're sort of saying, okay, what's, what is the entire solution of problems? And then prioritize them. What are the most important problems? And then what are all the possible solutions? And you prioritize the solutions. And by the end of this sort of four to eight weeks, you have this, this very concrete list of customer problems and features that we as a company would like to implement. And then you get people in a room for what we call an inception or you like a kickoff. It's like six to eight hours and you have like the technical architect, a, you know, like a tech lead or what we call an anchor. Um, and then you invite sort of the business stakeholders and you basically just agree, hey, what are the goals of our product and how do we want to do this? you know, at a basic level, you know, so they come with why we talk about how, and the question there is, Hey, what is the minimum viable product, right? What are things that are really, really valuable, but can be deferred until a future release so that we can get this out there so that we can get this feedback. And for us, that process has worked because we're not saying, no, we won't do it. The question is not, Hey, we're not saying, Hey, we don't want to do this ever. The question is, Hey, could we release something? Would something be valuable to our customers without this feature? And I may disagree, but that's sort of a question if the stakeholder says, yes, that's absolutely required in the initial go live. And we're like, cool, that answers that question. But sometimes just asking that, getting them to think about it, um, you get really, really good um, conversations. And then we can sort of see that. And I get a better understanding of where they're coming from. And then we can iterate. So long-winded answer, um, but does that help a little bit? It does. And, and I think it's, it's great to actually get into a bit of the nitty gritty as well, because, you know, it, it can sound quite floaty sometimes when you're talking about these principles, but, but to actually hear the specifics, um, you know, it's, it's that, the, 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 the howls, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I, I think it will, I mean, I hope it will kind of also make people think, um, that sometimes you, you can actually, it, we kind of just start projects without necessarily asking about the fundamentals beforehand, whereas the fundamentals are, are what drive it. Um, and, you know, that's, that's critical. You know, if you're saying we're going to do a thousand things, even though everything says it's going to fail because that's just too much. Well, it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise when it does fail. Yeah. And I think, I think it can be hard sometimes, even for, for me and my role at a company, which sort of does uh, not perfectly, um, but just sort of does support this process to sometimes, you know, justify this. And, and so sometimes we do sort of like a shortened, I expect, like if you're developing a new product, it's more important to do this, this full thing. If you're doing a shortened, sometimes we're like, Hey, we know this pretty well. And you can jump into maybe a week of discovery and then go straight into um, discovery or framing what we call like DNF, but, or you can go straight into um, an inception if you know that. And then sometimes you get an inception and sometimes you just got to pull the, the auto eject You'd be like, hey, all right, hey, we weren't, we thought we were ready, we're not ready, and uh, and I think it's one of the most important things as a product manager is to be able to have the courage to have like very important people, you know, potentially like VPs or execs or people who are very close to things, um, and to be able to pull the switch and say, hey, like we're not ready to start developing. If we don't have the answers to these questions, you know, maybe we just need to reschedule this uh, for another time, and that's I think one of the best parts, but also one of the hardest parts is when you're advocating for a customer who's not in the room and is paying the company, but it's not paying your bills. Um, there's a lot of times when you're sort of like putting yourself sort of on a limb. And so it's really important to, to be able to do that. You need a company that's also providing that cover and does that and to say like, hey, yes, you know, we value this enough that Andrew's putting himself on a, a limb, um, but like overall, because we think it's the best interest of the um customer, we can do that. But there are parts where you're surfing like, hey, you're you're exposing yourself, you're putting yourself there. Um, but that's what it takes to be able to advocate for someone. And I think that's just really um, valuable. And I think it says a lot about, you know, culture and, and company culture. And I think that's something also that's uh, we wanted to talk a bit about. Um, one of the issues in, in many organizations is just the hierarchical nature. So that the, the idea of someone junior saying, this isn't right even if they are the technical expert even if they are the you know and head engineer or whatever um you know them getting overruled by the vp or whatever um because that's quote unquote how it works and i suppose 
one of the key parts of agile indeed you know strong organizations is kind of building a culture which not only but but includes a space where you know people can speak out and, and be honest and um yeah I'd, I'd love to hear kind of a bit more of your thoughts on, on that i think you know you mentioned there's there's been a sort of relocation if i've understood correctly in terms of you know your offices and kind of looking at how you can build some of those company culture aspects um so so yeah if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit more about that yeah I think first of all, I think you're right. And I think I think I was reading I forget. I think I was reading the book Extreme Ownership by uh, Jarko Williamson. I forgot the second author who are former Navy SEALs and and they're basically talking about how can you take like absolute ownership of sort of your environment and these things that sort of say, hey, like everything that happens, especially if you're a manager, it's sort of your fault, but take as much ownership for things that go sort of, you know, right and wrong um, to say like, hey, I will do what I can for what's in my control. And, you know, and for them, as, as uh, I think they were Navy SEALs, you know, it's very important, you know, a lot of things you can't control, but you need to be able to control um, as much as possible. Um, but but part of what, and I think it was that book, but if it, if it wasn't, I apologize. Uh, but they talk about this idea of like empowering and this idea of like, by definition, um, you like it's very hard to empower someone you have to create an environment in which they can feel empowered to like step up and i think that's 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 really hard to do an organization and it requires some people being willing to step out and other people see how they're treated and so i think one of the most important parts in in agile as a whole and also for me is to be someone who's willing to put my head on the metaphorical chopping block so that other people see i'm still standing and and that head is not chopped off and I think as we sort of build these companies, you need people who are not necessarily VPs, but people who are very strong sort of champions or people who are willing to push back against that process. And so for us, what happened is uh, just to, to, to the story, we were staying in LA, we were sort of sharing this space with, with another consulting company, Pivotal, who I referenced before. Um, and then we, we, we left their office, relocated to our headquarters in Irvine, uh, sort of an hour and a half down the road. Um, and continued the partnership but when you're not staying in that office, some of those values and things there. And so what we're what we're going through now, or sort of a little bit of what I'm going through is, hey, you know, when sort of it's going from like uh, the kiddie pool to the full pool, there was a lot of people there who are sort of encouraging, who are there, who are helping. And, um, and, and then sort of that, that safety net, those, you know, uh, bumper rails as you're bowling um, aren't there. And so what does it look like to do that when there are um, when there are more risks and, and what you see is is when there's not that that positive push and when there is this potential stick um, how how do we build this culture and it's not just about speaking up but it's also about how can we encourage cross-team collaboration how do we encourage all of these things that don't just happen and how do we encourage people to step up and that's been a really really interesting thing that I have been thinking about I'll keep going. Thank you. Um, one more thing uh, to think about too is, um, and this is a little bit of a, of a step to the side, but sort of it's people people talk about culture a lot. It's sort of sort of a buzzword, um, but but what is what is culture? Right? And there's a lot of smarter people who have given a lot better answers, but I think at my level, sort of like as an as an individual contributor who has influence over a team. For me, a lot of what culture is, it's sort of what you say, but more importantly, it's what you choose to talk about, I think is what has the biggest um, influence. Specifically, I think that whatever the people around me choose to talk about most, that's where the culture, which is really just a reflection of what people do anyways, um, sort of tends to go. And so what I try to do is by choosing to focus on certain topics or bringing things up, for example, talking about process, talking about improvements, talking about the customer and value and things like that. Hopefully that starts to steer us in a conversation where we think about it, we focus on it, and that becomes part of our vocabulary more. And the less people talk about those things, the less they'll be a part of our culture. A lot. But I think really important stuff and you know, I find this this area fascinating and, and a few po thoughts popped up into my head. I mean, that question of what is culture, I, I've gotten more existential in the last few months in terms of asking some of these fundamental questions because, you know, a lot of these things are actually, I mean, does culture exist? 
it's it's a it's a concept so it's kind of what we want it to be um the difference with culture as opposed to some other things is that it's a, it's a collective thing um and so i kind of see it as a unified thing um otherwise that, that you know it's not a culture if everyone thinks it's a different thing but but also um that you can actually this was a really interesting one particularly around sort of some of the diversity stuff that the idea of a single culture is a bit of a myth too because hey you know we all have microcultures and hey if i go I don't know, for a coffee with a mate from work or something, well, we're going to talk quite differently than in the workplace. So is there such thing as a single culture? I don't know. Maybe we're, maybe I'm going a bit too philosophical down that line. But it's uh, it's a really interesting subject. And I couldn't help but think as well, um, even with the, the thought of talking about more things is part of the culture or, or being the culture with your definition. Um, yeah, I think there's some real value in that because it kind of steers the attention to it. Although one thing that comes to my mind is that those places, and perhaps this is less in your case, so um, uh, you see it in a different way, but those sorts of organisations where it is all talk and so nothing really happens because everyone's just talking. Um, yeah, that's why my mind actually went a bit more towards the action side. But, you know, I, to what extent does an, a real definition of culture matter? I don't know. So it's a, it's an interesting one. No, I I think I think this is really interesting, and I think I think you're right. I think if you had a culture of all like like that would create a culture of all talk, and and even as you're saying, it's like that talk needs to in some way be backed up by some actions that need to reflect it, um, because like as you said, like there can be all talk, um, but I I think it's two things, right? I think I think at, at a macro level, at like a company level, right? If a company says, hey, we value diversity. You know, we value people who speak up and then the people who speak up or are diverse are then slowly fired or they quit because there's no one there. And you're like, hey, that's what the culture actually is. You know, like like from my level of a team where I have influence, but not much control. Uh, well, I mean, I can't I don't really have the ability to hire or fire. So it's like different. Um, but, I but it's, you know, things like that's what's really important. It's culture is who you hire, who you fire, who you promote, who you recognize. Right. And I think. Some of those things we can also do, even though I can't hire or fire, I can still sort of recognize it and publicly sort of lift up and encourage some of the behaviors that I want to see. So I think talk is one thing, but I think after it has to come with that improvement, right? So like every week we have sort of what we call a, a retrospective. We look back at the last week and we try to get feedback just on my small team. And we're like, hey, you know, what do we do well? What do we want to watch out for? And what do we want to stop doing? Um, and it's this way to sort of recognize and, and celebrate some potential wins or stuff that we're doing well, but also find areas for improvement. And I think that's sort of this part of a culture where we say, hey, it'd be really great if we could have X. And, you know, I take that up and I'm like, okay, hey, what can I do to get us X? And then that sort of starts building a culture of like, hey, you know, like um, this iteration moving forwards. And then you do that and people feel more comfortable bringing things up. And it was like, okay, hey, how can we improve this process? Maybe instead of asking these questions, we ask different questions or we try a different format. Um, and I think it starts it starts with talk, but you're right. If, if, if we just only talk about it, we'll do that. But the danger of the other way is like, if we don't talk about it, then we're not thinking about it. And if we're not thinking about it, we're not gonna sort of be able to improve. Um, so I think it's just, you gotta make sure you start with talk but I think you're right. You can't, it can't just plateau. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny, the more you talk about it and the more that we talk about it, the more it becomes like a complex thing, because then it's also like the different actions and, and, you know, even you saying, well, in your team, well, clearly that's one instance. And then there's sort of the wider organizational culture as well. Um, I, I was a big fan of the sort of retrospectives. Um, I like them when I get an opportunity to kind of do them. I think it was, when you were speaking, because I, I did read the book, um, I think it's David Marquet, I, I googled his name, or Marquet, I don't know how to pronounce it. And I think he talks about that, that sort of having that reflective thing. And I think psychologically as well, just kind of going away from the doing and the more reflective stuff is important because it's like kind of, I don't remember if it's quite different sides of the brains, but it's almost like a bit of a switch um, from one to the other. So um, yeah, just just really interesting hearing your experiences um, and, and what you're doing. Um, I guess where I where I tend to go, I and quite a few people aren't the biggest fan of them, but I I'm a big fan of the sort of values and going down to that level and then finding it easier to kind of build from that. Um, obviously, 
if you impose the values, it doesn't work so well. But um, yeah, I've, I mean, I'm even thinking just of my own experiences. It's hard to build like a good, just even work strategy without an idea of how you're meant to do it. Um, and sometimes that's implicit, but I don't know. I'm a fan of explicitly saying it. Um, although I do appreciate a lot of them are just like these gunky things. But anyway. I was gonna say just just quickly jump. Out. I, I do like values, and uh, and actually one one of my my current um one of my current mentors, Ruel Macareg, Acrologic, and one of his one of his big things is like, okay, sure, you have you have your values list, right? But but how does that translate into something practical? How does that apply to the things that we're doing in our workplace, so that we can be held accountable to our values? For example, you know, we say that we want to be X. I'll give an example. Like we say that we want to automate the boring stuff, right? That's an easy one for us. Um, how can we, what does that translate to practically, right? And that's a fairly popular one. No one has that. But another one is we want to focus on the customer. Well, what does that mean? Part of it can be, hey, we, we'd like a certain process or we have like certain outcomes that we hope or certain things. Um, but by trying to tie our values to something not too concrete, but not too ephemeral that helps create that accountability. And it also helps people have a sense of, okay, you say X and that looks like Y. And it's not only Y, it's not an exhaustive list, but sometimes that helps people fire, brain firing. And, and we're still in this process of literally over the last couple of months, I've been trying to develop this values list for, for our sort of micro team um, and trying to answer some of these questions of how can I make it more effective than just you know, a gunky piece of corporate art that goes on a wall and people think, huh, that's cute. You revisit it every six months and you're like, oh, this is a nice document. Maybe we should do this. Yeah, no, I know the feeling. Uh, the, the one thing that actually came to my mind when you're speaking, um, it wasn't perfect, but one thing in uh, when I was working in the UK government, there was a lot about your objectives, which were the sort of what, I mean, objective setting was not great there, but one thing that kind of had some sense was, what are you doing? So, you know, some technical thing on analyzing policy or whatever, that tended to be my sort of thing. But then there was a whole range on like the hows of you're doing it and you're meant to do it in a collaborative way and all this sort of stuff. Hmm. And it was fit in in terms of those were the behaviors that you needed to use to apply for jobs, um, which I think was a good thing. The, the one thing is that it can be gamed and obviously to what extent can you really check whether someone is doing something collaboratively? It's quite tricky. Um, but it's it's interesting. It's different anyway. That's true. And that's another thing too that I like too is like one of the values that we have is to be seeking feedback, which is one of the most ephemeral things that can very easily be be gamed. Um, but hopefully that would be something that come up in feedback. People would say, hey, like this isn't working because like people are just sort of trying to do the letter of the law instead of the spirit. Um, but I think that's one of the most important things in these systems is to make sure that you have like feedback channels, um, both across the team, but also across levels so that someone who's like sort of a director or an exec can have that, that cycle of, you know, Hey, what's going on on the ground and what are people thinking about these levels and making sure that there are those, you know, you know, front channels, but also back channels, um, you know, for feedback to move and it can move in, in both directions. I think that's really important for a healthy organization. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And it's also interesting in terms of like, I know one thing that you, you said you were also interested in, just, just on this question, actually, even with, with careers and stuff and, you know, what a career path even looks like in an organization or indeed anywhere, you know, and, and whether it's the idea that we build a culture, let's even use that word, where, you know, people are expected to move up and get to the top and, you know, that's quote unquote success or, is it one that people can, you know, find the level or find what they love and be happy to do that? It's one thing I've seen as well that like people going into promotions for more money, but then getting into management, which they didn't actually like doing. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I, I think I forgot the principle. There's a principle that causes it basically says people get promoted until the point that they're ineffective. And uh, the theory goes, the reason you get promoted to a job is because you're good at your current job. So you will keep getting promoted until you're at a job that you're not good enough at to get promoted to the next one. So you get an organization where everyone is just one level higher than their most effective or were very effective, um, which is sort of just an interesting way to think about it. And, uh, and I definitely see that too. I think on product management, well, some of the theories 
uh, or at least the idea is that people who aren't in product management is like, sure, you start as whatever you, you started as potentially business analyst or engineer or, or designer, you go to, you know, and, and this is not the only way and, and product management isn't perfect, but this is paths, right? You go become product management, you become sort of like a leader and you lead a team, then you become an executive, then you lead a company, right? And this, 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 there's this clear sort of staircase that goes up. Um, but what I've, what I've seen too, and it, I think it's also true with engineering, right? Like, hey, I'm an engineer. I then become a senior engineer. I become an architect. I become like a lead a team and then I become a CTO. Uh, you know, there's, there's these different paths and, and those paths are great. And there's a lot of people there for, but trying to sort of get people into those paths means that you lose out on people who, you know, still want to be able to achieve those levels of excellence and especially, you know, the pay grades that come associated with them, which often put people there. But that actually, as you said, like, or, or don't want to be managers, they don't want to lead, they just want to be able to be sort of an individual contributor. And so one of the things that companies like Google did is they set up two tracks. They set up there like, hey, if you want to go into management, you can do this track. And if you want to just go deeper and deeper into like being an individual contributor, you can do that. And you could just become a software engineer, or you can be a product manager for the rest of your career and still have, you know, growth opportunities still be able to, to grow in that, um, but there's not that. Because I know at some organizations, you sort of have a glass ceiling um, that's either sort of either sort of pay or responsibility that unless you sort of make that jump up, um, you sort of have to leave the company to take the same role at a different company. And I think that's really sad because I think companies lose out. I heard this anecdotal example that the guy who invented the sticky note, Lots of great examples, lots of terrible fact-checking by me, so I apologize. But uh, the guy who invented the sticky note, he, um, and this, it may be just allegedly, but but he was working at the company, I forget which company, uh, but essentially he they wanted to promote him and he's like, no, I want to stay here. And so they created his own track uh, you know, at that company. And so he stayed as an individual contributor and he just happily kept inventing stuff. And one of the things he invented was the sticky note. And so the story goes like, if we didn't have this individual track for people to keep doing what they love without being forced to like manage people and go in that path, you know, we might not have this ubiquitous product that is the sticky note. And this company would have lost out on millions, possibly billions of dollars of sales of the sticky note. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I've come to a similar thought in terms of a dual track process would be a good thing. Uh, the, the more I've kind of looked at it, there are people who just don't particularly want to manage and then get into management and then don't do a great job of it. And, and that causes issues. The one thing I kind of mull over when I think about this though, is just, well, where does one, how does one sort of solve the issue of, okay, well, the, the you know, people need to be managed and, and the amount of managers you have. Um, and, you know, part of me was like, oh, well, you know, hiring people for management skills, only you know is that perhaps going a bit far because then you're getting managers that don't actually understand the, the, the enough of the technicals and you know i suppose we all read the stereotypes of you know the manager who rolls in and doesn't know what they're doing and messes everything up although even saying that out loud i think if it was like a proper professionalized thing and people could become managers and and what i'm proposing here to be clear is like not that you join as an engineer or business analyst and then get to decide whether there ought to be like almost a bit of a management profession in of itself. Um, I don't know exactly how that would work or what it would look like, but I just wonder because the, the, there clearly is an issue here um, that people who don't want to manage are managing and people who are getting managed by them are miserable and leaving. Uh, and I just wonder whether there's a way you could deal with it, you know? Yeah. And I don't know that there's a perfect solution, especially for companies that are already there. Um, I do think that, you know, like if someone's miserable, right. And, and generally, I, I, I'm not sure of this. this is an assumption I'm making, but if you're a bad manager, I assume, you know, that, right. And so it's like, Hey, like you got here, but generally there's sort of like these golden handcuffs, which are like, Hey, I could take a step down, but I'd be losing. I, I'd have to step back from the salary that is, you know, allowed at this job too. And, and, and I'm not entirely sure how to handle that. But I think it's just telling people, hey, like, like normalizing that, hey, it's okay to want to be a manager and just be a middle manager. It's okay to want to be a CEO. It's okay to just want to be an engineer and just build stuff. It's okay. And, and for all of these jobs, it's okay to be a designer. You know, whatever these jobs are, it's okay to just want to do that thing really, really well. And it's also okay 
to want to grow and, you know, do something bigger and just sort of normalizing that it's okay to have both of those as options. And then to say, hey, how can we normalize? Hey, if you're in a job that you're not feeling fulfilled, how can we create like reskilling opportunities to put you back into something that you'd be more um, happy in? Um, one thing too, though, and so that's from like the people management of like, hey, this, but in some organizations, you don't have the flexibility because there aren't the people. But if there are people who are sort of calling this net deficit, I think there does need to be a conversation where like, hey, how can we either make you effective in your current role, make you effective in a different role, or, you know, make you an effective at a role at a different company? <laughs> and I think, you know, that's some tough things, which luckily I'm not in the position to have to make those decisions and conversations. But um, I think companies that sometimes shy away from that, you know, like B players hire C players, but B players and C players can also drive away sort of excellent people because, you know, they tend not to always have the same patience with that. I mean, it's, it's really interesting and, and, and it's, it's something we can muse about for a long time. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I don't think, I think, I mean, there's, I definitely agree. I don't think there's a perfect solution to this stuff, but um, yeah, always good to, always good to talk about, to be honest. Uh, I definitely gained a lot. Um, I'm also conscious we're, we're running low on time and I think it's time that we move to the quick fire round. Um, yeah. So there are two sets of options. There is the uh, either or questions, um, which are a bit more straightforward. And then there's the philosophical ones, which are a bit more complex, but still a quick fire. Which set of questions would you prefer? I think I'd prefer the philosophical. I'm able to go a little over if you are. Otherwise, maybe we should do the quick fire ones just for the yeah. time because I wax on. Uh, that's all right. Um, it's still good to keep them relatively quick fire, though they're not the easiest to. So let, let's go with the philosophical. So, uh, okay, 10 questions. The first question is, what motivates you? Oh, great question. I, I think I'll try to keep it quick. Uh, I think for me, sort of also sort of having a big element of sort of faith in there and just sort of that idea of how can I be the best representation of Christ in a workplace and in a personal life and things like that, and then things coming out of that. So I think a lot of the agile principles of like, hey, how can you best be serving and helping people uh, naturally comes out of that. Question two, what quote resonates with you? I'm currently reading Simon Sinek's Start With Why, and the quote of, uh, it's not directed from that, but if you want people to build a boat, don't teach or don't tell them to gather wood and metal, teach them to long for the sea, and then they'll help you build a boat. Number three, what is a good piece of advice you've received? There's a lot. I think it's okay to fail. I think it's the one that I've been doing that. It's okay to try things and they just don't work and that's okay. And I think we talked about before, like bad work gets bad grades. It's like, sometimes it's okay to mess up. Question four, are you where you want to be in life? You know, uh, I, I just got married a few months ago. Um, you know, I'm having, uh, my, my wife is now pregnant. Uh, we're gonna have a kid. Uh, so there's a lot of things in my life where I'm like that, uh, looking to do things, uh, you know, potentially looking to, to buy a home, potentially doing other things. But right now, life's, life's pretty good. Congratulations. Well, exciting. Thank you. What do you think is the key to living a good life? I think it's not focusing your definition of success solely on your own life but also about sort of the, the relationships that you're in and not just how much you're receiving, but also how much you're able to sort of help the people in the world around you. What's your strong, or what is a strongly held belief? I think obviously, sort of going back to it, I think obviously sort of that faith and that is in some ways, and I hold this intellectually and I try to hold it practically, but trying to give more than I receive and ask for. What's a kind thing someone did for you? Um, even this this opportunity uh, that I have at CoreLogic, right? It was taking a lot of people, taking a chance on me, people who are willing to 
refer me to this company, people who are willing to take a chance. You know, I've now been here four and a half years um, and I'm just, just really grateful both for the people who sort of let me have this opportunity for CoreLogic to sort of, you know, invest in me for people like, you know, Sherry and Jeff um, and Steve, uh, just, or sorry, previous mentors who have just really just poured into me, uh, especially when I felt like I was just some, you know, punk intern. <laughs> I think we've all been there. Um, what is the kind of thing you've done for someone else? I think it's, I mean, just on the same, just to, to sort of do it, I think it's just trying to um, pay it forward, you know, trying to find people who are there and just try to try to share a little bit um, of what I know and, and just do that and just try to every day make the world a little bit of a, of a better place. Do you think people can change? I do think people can change. And the final question. What do you think the meaning of life is? Well, quick fire. Um, <laughs> man, there's so many answers that are coming to mind. Um, obviously, sort of with Love with Faith, I think there's something which is about sort of trying to make, I, I joke about this. I was just sort of talking to some of the kids um, at my church and I was like, we should try to make earth more like heaven so we're less surprised you know, when the end of times comes. And uh, I think it's, it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit of that, of trying to make sure that we're ready for when, you know, my belief is, you know, that, that, you know, God will come back and there will be sort of a new earth uh, that we get to explore and that we sort of are sort of ready for that. And that we get to, um, you know, see who can come along with us and how we can sort of build that. But, uh, but I, I, I don't have a full, I don't have a great answer. It's, uh, I mean, I like the making earth more like heaven. Okay. Well, that was the final question. Um, well, it's been, it, it's been great speaking. Um, I, I think we covered a lot of really interesting things and, and kind of went quite in the philosophy of organizations as well, uh, and of ourselves. Um, so really appreciate your time. And, and just before we finish up, um, I just wanted to ask whether there's anything else you'd like to share either to myself or to the listeners, um, before we wrap up. No, uh, I'm not one of those influencers who's like, follow me on Twitter. I deleted my Twitter six years ago, so I uh, can't reach me there. But no, I just wanted to say thank you so much for this opportunity. It's been a super fun sort of having this conversation. Um, yeah, it was just a lot of fun, great experience. Um, so I think I just watched Free Guys. So my last advice is don't have a good day. Have a great day. Okay, well, thanks to all the listeners and indeed have a great day. Thank you very much for listening. I've been your host, Tamar Chowdhury. If you liked what you heard, perhaps consider subscribing. You can also find more information about me at my website, tamarchowdhury.co.uk. And here you can also find my full list of podcasts, as well as my weekly written blogs. If you do want to get in contact or have suggestions and feedback, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Do drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. 